Hey everyone, Brittany here. I just wanted to say Blessed Samhain and Happy Halloween to you all. Today I have two spooky stories for you, so cuddle up, grab a drink, let's bubbles, and let's get started. So my first story today is called Zombie Road, and it's in Missouri. And I got my information from stlouismag.com. The stories associated with the old roadway nicknamed Zombie Road in Missouri are many. Located outside of St. Louis, the original name of the road was Lawler Ford Road and was constructed in the late 1860s. It was originally built to gain access to the Merrimack River and the railroad tracks located alongside. It started to be referred to as Zombie Road as early as the 1950s. When the road was used more frequently, the narrow winding lane running around two miles through dense woods still had an eerie vibe. Strange shadows and areas of half-light, together with the inability to see what was coming along the next curve, and the narrow width made it a dangerous bit of road. Eventually, it fell into disrepair, and it was abandoned and mostly unused. The secluded location made the Lawler Ford Road a destination in the 1950s as a local hangout for area teenagers for parties, drinking, and making out. Today, most of those who come to Zombie Road come for a different reason. Over the years, the road gained a reputation for being haunted. Based on the legends and stories, those with supernatural curiosities began to visit the area. One popular story and the reason for the name is that the quote-unquote zombie killer, a creepy guy who lived in a shack in the woods and would attack young lovers looking for a place to be alone. As the years passed, the chilling stories continued, including ghosts, vanishing, and strange noises, one of the most spine-tingling may be the frequently retold story about a ghost of a person who was hit by a train and now haunts the area. The legend becomes more chilling with the real story of Della Hamilton McCullough. Mrs. McCullough was the wife of a local judge who was hit by a train and died in 1876. Since there are no other records of anyone being killed by a train in this area at that time, it's widely believed that Mrs. McCullough may just be the actual famed ghost from the legend. The area around Glencoe once served as a resort community until the 1940s. A lot of the houses were converted for year-round residents, but some were left abandoned and decaying. These ruins contributed to the creepiness of the road, and may be the former homes of apparitions that visitors encounter. Near the old shacks and ramshackle homes located along the beach area at the end of the trail, one ghost sighting includes that of a mysterious old woman who yells at passers-by from a house. Upon investigation, the woman is never there. There was another story of sightings of a specter believed to be the ghost of a boy who fell from the bluffs along the river and died and his body was never found. A long history of the original indigenous tribes who once lived there in the area explain why sightings of Native American ghosts have been reported. In fact, it is possible that at least parts of Zombie Road originated as an indigenous trail. In the late 1800s, train tracks had been extended along the river, passing through what would later be Glencoe. While only a few remnants of the original railroad remain, the old lines can still be seen at the end of Zombie Road. Here lies the setting of the stories of the railroad ghost. Several accounts of a translucent figure in white have been reported. The figure walks up the abandoned line and then disappears, or it glows with a bluish-white light and disappears upon approach. Could this be Della McCullough? 
Besides the wandering spirit that is believed to be Della, it is possible that some of the other restless ghosts may be those of accident victims along the rail lines. Over the years, the sharp bends in the tracks at Glencoe were the site of frequent derailments, to the point that part of the service was being discontinued. While unsettling feelings and the sensation of being watched that many report could be explained away by the spooky surroundings alone, the eerie sounds, inexplicable noises, and disembodied footsteps cannot be completely ignored. So how do you find Zombie Road? It's located in Wildwood, formerly Ellisville and Glencoe, although for years it was marked with a sign. Today, only a chained gate marks the entrance, now paved and remade into a modern-day bike trail and jogging path. The notoriously popular two-mile stretch is now known simply as Rock Hollow Trail. My second story for you today is called Dead Woman's Crossing in Weatherford, Oklahoma. My source was Faxology.com. The article is by Hector Navarro. It starts with a quote. There is a ghost here, a lonely, heartbroken spirit, the ghost of everything that could have been and never was, by Jennifer Donnelly from The T-Rose. If you have heard a couple of miles northeast of Weatherford, Oklahoma, you'll find a concrete bridge where late at night, something not of this world is said to wander the area. Though the night may be clear and the road may be empty, you might feel a sudden temperature drop and the sounds of a wagon creaking by. Some have reported hearing the cries and screams of a woman echoing through the night. Others have reported actually seeing a woman wandering along the bridge alone, searching for her baby before disappearing. Though the stories of the hauntings at Dead Woman's Crossing are up for debate, the origin of this spirit and the name of the crossing stem from an unsolved murder from over a hundred years ago that still haunts the area today. Today we're looking at the events surrounding the murder of Katie DeWitt James that has caused some to believe her spirit still wanders Dead Woman's Crossing in Weatherford, Oklahoma. Katie DeWitt James was a 29-year-old school teacher from Lenora, Oklahoma, who, in July of 1905, reached the last straw with her abusive husband of four years, Martin Luther James. Seeing no other way out from under his abuse, on July 6, 1905, she filed for divorce, though this information wouldn't be public for a few months. That day, Katie took her 13-month-old daughter Lulu and went to visit her father Henry DeWitt, where they made plans to have the two stay with some relatives in Ripley, Oklahoma. The following day, the three arrived at the train station in Custer City, where Henry bid his daughter and granddaughter farewell, though he could never have imagined it would be the last time he would see his daughter alive. On the train, Katie met Franny Norton, sometimes spelled Franny, Fanny, or Franny with an I-E, and depending on what articles you read, was either a housekeeper or a prostitute sex worker. But what many articles do agree on is Franny Norton had been tried for murder and acquitted in the past. Had Katie known this, she might not have gotten off the train with Franny at Weatherford that same day, but she didn't know and she got off. After getting off the train, the two spent the evening with some of Franny's family and set off on a carriage to the town of Hydro early the next morning. An hour later, the same carriage, now without Katie, came rushing out of some fields, stopping at a nearby farm owned by the Burshide family. Franny called over a boy tending to the farm and handed him a baby, unharmed, but bundled up in bloody clothing. She simply told him to get home. Franny then threw some bloody clothing in a nearby bush and sped off in the carriage. Several hours later, she arrived home, gathered her kids, and disappeared. 
On July 28th, Henry D. Witt was at his wit's end. By now he had expected to hear from his daughter or relatives that she had arrived safely, but no messages ever came. Believing that something happened to her, he reached out to the sheriff who referred him to Detective Sam Bartell. At Weatherford, Sam was quickly able to find witnesses who saw Katie at the train station and her getting off with the infamous Franny Norton. Following their tracks, he found the bloody carriage and the two had used to set off to Hydro. By the end of the day, Sam Bartell had found Lulu at the Bershide family farm, still being taken care of by the family, and now knew Katie was either gravely injured or dead. His next task was finding the missing Franny Norton. Since Franny was well known after having been acquitted of her murder, it didn't take Sam long to find her. The very next day, he found her in Shawnee, Oklahoma, and arrested her for possible murder of Katie DeWitt. Though she denied having done anything to Katie, Sam wouldn't have the opportunity to question her further when Franny excused herself to the bathroom and ingested poison. Franny Norton died instantly. Without any more leads and no suspect, the trail went cold, and it seemed like we would never know what happened to Katie DeWitt. Henry DeWitt feared the worst and put up a $75 bounty for anyone who could find his daughter's body. Martin James took custody of Lulu and moved to a new home. On August 31, 1905, a man named George Cornell was out planning to go fishing when he stumbled upon a badly decomposed body hidden by bushes near the wagon crossing by the creek. He immediately returned to town, and within the hour, the authorities, including Sam Bartell and Henry DeWitt, were on the scene. There they found a body with its head a few feet away. Based on her clothing and wedding ring, Henry identified Katie's body. She had been shot in the back of the head. Sam then found a thirty-eight caliber revolver with one cartridge missing in a nearby bush. Interestingly, the area where her body was found had been searched previously, but no bodies had been found there. Despite having found her body, and because the last person to see her alive, Franny Norton, was now dead, the police were no closer to finding out what events led to her untimely death. But in the weeks and years that followed, multiple theories and one official ruling would mar the truth. Authorities quickly assumed robbery was the motive for the murder, and Franny was the murderer given her past history. They surmised Franny Norton tricked Katie into believing someone at the train station was asking about her, making Katie nervous enough to trust Franny. Using this trust, Franny brought Katie to her brother-in-law's home, where she lulled her into a false sense of security, and the following day she brought her to the field to kill her and rob her. The problem with this theory is although Katie had $25 on her, which is equivalent to $800 in today's money, she had much more, a much more expensive wedding ring. If the motive was robbery, why didn't Franny take her wedding ring and reportedly expensive hat as well? Despite this, in September, the coroner ruled that Franny had killed Katie during the course of a robbery, though the lack of investigation further may have been due to Martin James testifying that Katie James and Franny Norton worked together to kill him. According to an article from September 5, 1905, Martin James testified that several days before Katie was killed, she had tricked him into believing she was ill and needed him to carry her to and from bed. Despite this, he would still find her in different places in the home whenever he returned. The night before she left town, he claimed he heard her say, There he is, let's kill him, and in front of him, Franny and Katie appeared, each holding a weapon. Franny with a shotgun and Katie with a butcher's knife. In the struggle, Franny hit him over the head with the shotgun and Katie sliced his hand, but in the end he was able to escape. According to him, that was the last time he saw Katie. 
The paper that printed his story reflected the thoughts of those at the time, ending the article by calling Kitty a, quote, Jezebel. It's hard to believe this rumor floating around wouldn't have influenced the coroner's decision or the authorities' decision to stop investigating the case. Yet with the case now closed, many still believe Martin had something to do with the murder. Rumors floated around that Martin had hired Franny to kill Katie. Other rumors said Martin killed Katie and threatened Franny he would kill her and her kids if she said anything. For those that believe Martin was behind the murder, they point to his lack of sympathy shown when he was told of Katie's murder. After taking custody of Lulu, he refused to allow Henry to see his granddaughter and let Lulu believe that Katie was still alive. Tragically, Lulu died at the age of eight from spinal meningitis. One final theory popped up years later based on a rumor of an unnamed man who told authorities he saw two men on horses chasing after Katie and Franny on the day Katie was murdered. At the time, a child, the man told authorities he went to investigate, finding them having already shot Katie. He was then forced at gunpoint to chop off her head. Unfortunately, records of this event are hard to come by, and many articles seem to not even mention it, calling into question its authenticity. Though whatever the actual details around her death were, it turns out it wouldn't be the last time people saw Katie do it. Decades after her death and many motorists driving past the area at night would reportedly see a woman holding a baby wandering the area by a creek. Those who stopped believing she was stranded or had been in an accident would discover she disappeared just moments later. If they went back into town and spoke of the sighting, the people in Weatherford would simply tell them they saw the spirit of Katie DeWitt James. Sightings of Katie became so common that in the 1980s, when the wagon crossing was demolished and a bridge was built, it was given the name Dead Woman's Crossing. Many have claimed to see Katie with Lulu, and without wandering the area by the creek, others have heard wagons or heard the scream of a dying Katie. Others still claim to see a blue light floating above the bridge or trees coming from an unknown source and believe it to be Katie. Of course, none of these are substantiated claims. In the end, Dead Woman's Crossing might not actually be haunted, but in 1905, Katie DeWitt was murdered, and we may never know what happened, though Henry DeWitt may have hinted at a suspect when on her gravestone he inscribed how many hopes he has ended here. But how about you? What do you think happened to Katie DeWitt? And what about Dead Woman's Crossing? Is it actually haunted? Or do the stories around it influence those who visit it still seeking to see a spirit? Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Champion and Murder, Please. As always, if you like what you hear, go ahead and press that like and subscribe button. And if you have any suggestions, comments, stories of your own, our email is champagneandmurderplease at gmail.com. And remember, stay safe, and today only, you can take candy from strangers. Bye!